Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today, we're joined by Lucene Hoppy, shareholder at Fredrickson and Byron, and also a member of the board of the National LGBT Bar Association. Lucene, thank you very much for joining us today. Emily, thanks so much for having me. Very happy to be here. We are excited to talk to you because you were one of the key writers in a resolution that was put forward by the ABA, CJS, and it's been very successful in getting attention and getting policy changed. So let's go ahead and introduce the defense strategy that was addressed in this resolution, and that is the gay panic defense. For our listeners who may be unfamiliar with this defense strategy, can you please first tell us what the gay panic defense is? Sure, Emily. The gay panic defense, it's really not actually an affirmative defense in criminal law per se. It's really a legal strategy, and it can take a number of forms. At its core, it's going to ask a jury to find that a victim's sexual orientation, or often to gender identity or an expression, that that is to blame for a defendant's violent reaction to the victim, such as committing an assault or a murder against that person. Like I said, it's not really a freestanding affirmative defense to criminal liability, like, for example, something like self-defense would be, but it's a legal tactic that's often used to bolster other types of defenses. And I reference this, but I want to make sure this defense is also used against members of the transgender community. And so I probably will refer to it as gay or trans panic throughout when I'm talking. That's how it's commonly referred to. So when a perpetrator tries to use this defense, they are essentially claiming that a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity not only explains, but somehow excuses them losing their self-control and committing a subsequent assault. You know, and the problem obviously is this, by fully or partially acquitting the perpetrators of crimes against LGBT victims, you know, this defense implies essentially that those lives are somehow worth less than others. I think for me, when I... To be honest, I wasn't familiar with this strategy, and granted, I don't practice law myself, but I'm sure I'm not alone in being surprised that this has been used as a viable defense strategy. And I'm just wondering, how is this defense used in court, and is it commonly used in present day, or is it one of those things that used to be more common, for the most part, doesn't really get used today, but needs to be eradicated? Good question. So traditionally, I would say the gay or trans panic defense has been used in essentially three ways. And most often, what it's used to do is to mitigate a case of murder down towards manslaughter, justified homicide, but often also used to try to result in a hung jury or some kind of acquittal. But the three ways Oftentimes it's linked, for instance, to a defense like criminal defense. There are specific criminal defenses outlined in statutes in a particular state that says, you know, if you can prove this defense, you are not responsible for committing murder and either may be found not guilty 
by reason of insanity or for another reason. So there's the defense of insanity or diminished capacity where a defendant would allege that some kind of sexual proposition by the victim, for instance, triggered a, you know, a nervous breakdown in the defendant causing some kind of panic reaction. The defense itself is based on an outdated psychological term the gay panic disorder, but that was debunked by the American Psychiatric Association and removed from the DSM in 1973, so many, many years ago. And sadly, while the medical field has evolved with, you know, our increasingly just society, the legal field hasn't really caught up on that one yet. So, you know, the self-defense is one way. Some states have a defense of, quote, provocation. So the classic provocation defense historically was man, you know, comes into his house, sees his wife having an affair with another man and shoots the guy or his wife, right? So the defense of provocation in a gay panic sense, that allows the defendant to argue that the victim's proposition or a sexual advance or something about that victim and their status as gay or trans was sufficiently provocative to induce the defendant to kill the victim. So that's another way. And then finally, they might tie this to a classic self-defense argument in court. So the defense might say that the defendant believes the victim because of their sexual orientation or gender identity was going to cause the defendant somehow serious bodily harm. This defense is more really offensive and harmful because it argues somehow that a person's gender or sexual identity makes them more of a threat to safety in some way than other people. As to use in present day, sadly, this defense is still fairly pervasive. Certainly, I think it probably had more impact on a jury probably three, four, or five decades ago when animus and stigma towards gay and trans people was more prevalent, I'm sure. But the Williams Institute has sort of traced over the years where this defense has come up in court cases, where it's actually in the text of a published court case that there's a reference to it. And, you know, there are references to it in about half the states in the country that go back from 1973 all the way to very recently. And many of those cases are in the 2000s and 2010s where people are still trying to use this defense. There are some really good examples of this. The case that got me really interested in this was the case of, you know, I remember this in the paper very well. This was back in 2008. It was a 15-year-old kid in Oxnard, California, Larry King, who was shot twice by a fellow student, Brandon McInerney. And in that case, the reporting showed that King, before he was shot, he had walked onto the basketball court in the middle of a game and asked McInerney to be his valentine in front of some other team members. And then on that same day, King had passed him in a quarter and shouted at him something like, love you, baby. King was also known for wearing, you know, clothing that's traditionally viewed as women's clothing, high-heeled boots or makeup to school. And apparently McInerney, as the defense argued at trial, was so upset by this that on the morning of February 12, 2008, he came into the classroom during a computer lab class and took a 22 caliber revolver out of his backpack and shot Larry King twice in the back of the head and killed him. Wow. You know, he was apprehended right away. 
there was no question on who shot Larry King, but during trial, McInerney's attorney described King throughout the trial as an aggressor, saying he was sexually aggressive and made inappropriate marks and was constantly provoking McInerney. And the first trial actually resulted in a hung jury. The jurors couldn't come to a decision on guilt or innocence, even with the fact that there was no controversy that McInerney went up and shot Larry King in the back of the head. Several jurors were on 2020 at the time and stated that King had been bullying McInerney and leaving him with, quote, no way out. And ultimately what happened to McInerney is he pled guilty to second-degree murder before having to undergo a second trial. And so he avoided the first-degree murder, premeditated murder charge on that by getting a hung jury and using a gay panic type of defense. I can understand why that would motivate someone to look into this defense and take some action against it. That's quite a shocking example. It was. I was, yeah. I, you know, that one really got my attention and upset me at the time yeah. when that came out. I thought that, that, is, of course. that is just not right at all. Of course, because as you say, it just, I can't imagine anyone saying being bullied on, you know, just another level, there's some other context, that that would be enough provocation to justify somebody coming in and shooting them in the back of the head twice. Yeah, right. So, and that's what these defenses try to claim, you know, right. that's what happens, yeah. Right, which, just as you said, that does imply a difference in a value of life. So let's talk about what you did about it. You were one of the primary authors on an ABA resolution that addressed the gay panic defense. So can you tell us about this resolution? What did it include and how was it received? Sure. There were a fair amount of cooks in the kitchen that made that resolution happen. And I definitely want to give credit where credit is due. So I worked closely with Professor Ryan Scott at Indiana University, and he and his team did a lot of the research and analysis into the gay panic defense and how it was used historically and recently. And they drafted a really fantastic initial legal memorandum. So I helped dial it into ABA resolution form and worked on the language of actually what we wanted the ABA to resolve to do. And then there was a team of us that worked with the criminal justice section and got it to a vote on the floor of the House of Delegates. Throughout the process, you know, we really had support of the National LGBT Bar Association too. And so I have to give a call out to them. So Essentially what the resolution did, and this was passed in 2013 by the ABA, we asked the American Bar Association to urge federal, state, local governments to take legislative action to curtail the, both the availability and effectiveness of the gay and trans panic defenses and any types of defenses that would seek to partially or completely excuse crimes like murder and assault on the grounds that the victim's sexual orientation or gender identity would be to blame for the defendant's violent reaction to them. So what we specifically asked them to resolve was that the legislative action should include a couple of different things. Like, first of all, requiring courts in criminal trial or proceedings anytime it's requested by a party where this type of defense might come into play to issue an instruction to the jury to not let bias or sympathy, prejudice, public opinion, et cetera, influence its decision about the victims based on either sexual orientation or gender identity. We also asked the ABA to resolve that legislatures should specify that neither 
a nonviolent sexual advance nor the discovery of a person's sex or gender identity should constitute some kind of legally adequate provocation to either reduce crime from murder to manslaughter or to mitigate the severity of any type of assault or other non-capital crime. That was what we boiled down our request to. And there was really strong support, honestly, for this from all quarters. We, we weren't entirely sure at the time what to expect. Now, obviously, there were some members of the criminal defense bar that had some concerns, and I understood that. I'm a criminal defense lawyer myself, actually, in my practice, and I'm certainly not normally in the business of trying to limit possible defenses for my clients. But, you know, in the end, even those who expressed initial concern, I think, realized there's a real sense of unfairness and a double standard and some real discrimination involved in using this defense. Essentially, you're saying that it's so shocking, provoking, or upsetting that someone who is gay or trans might exist or make a pass at you that you're allowed to essentially beat them or kill them. And so ultimately, I think folks recognized that this is something the ABA should take a stand against. And the resolution ended up passing with flying colors through the House of Delegates. I'm happy to hear that <laughs> because yeah. you're right. It's... Yeah, I just, I find myself at a loss for words to comprehend how we as a society could justify or rationalize any sort of attack, physical attack on someone based on their gender identity or their sexual orientation. So I'm happy to hear that there was that overwhelming support. And let's talk about what happened after it passed the House of Delegates. For our listeners, as we've discussed in previous episodes, resolutions are intended to help reform policies or legislation. So Lucine, can you tell us what changes have we seen since this resolution was passed? Yes. So some courts and legislatures have already begun to curb the use of gay or trans panic defenses. Some states are lagging behind and we haven't gotten very far yet, but there's a lot of folks out there continuing to work toward that. Essentially, following the resolution in 2013, the LGBT bar and the ABA got together to continue working with lawmakers at the state level to help ban the use of this tactic in courtrooms across the country. So right now, the gay and trans panic defense has been banned in, I believe it is officially nine states now. I know California, Illinois, Rhode Island, Nevada, Connecticut, Maine, Hawaii, New York, and New Jersey. That has all happened since 2013. And then I know there's also been legislation introduced, not yet passed, in at least nine or ten other states, including most recently Maryland and the state of Washington. So since this resolution 2013, we've made a real difference in a number of states, and you know we're getting closer to half the states that at least have bills introduced which is very exciting for us. Also, I should mention this at the federal level, in July 2018, Senator Markey from Massachusetts and Congressman Kennedy uh, introduced a bill in the United States Senate, the Gay and Trans Panic Defense Prohibition Act. And I think they reintroduced that in last year in June as well. It's really great that some of the senators have taken up this, and the congressman in the House of Representatives has taken this cause up. We appreciate that. Well, what can our listeners do if they want to help or get involved? Where can we direct them to? And even as you've mentioned, there's 
been legislation introduced in a number of states and even on the federal level, what can people do to help encourage the passing of that or, you know, writing to their congressman or senator, letting them know that they're, or congresswoman, whoever that may be, to let them know that they support getting rid of the gay or trans panic defense? Beyond listening to this podcast, which I thank anyone who's listening, you can take a few minutes maybe to just learn a bit more about this defense. There's some really good resources out there, especially if you work in the criminal justice system. The National LGBT Bar has a page under an advocacy tab on its website that's a really good reference on the background of the panic defense and what exactly is going on in states. They also have a timeline of relevant cases up there so people can kind of look through that and see how it's been used. The Williams Institute has also done some really great work in the area of researching gay and trans panic and how it's been used. And there's a fair amount of information available on their website as well. So that's step one. And then another thing is find out what's going on in your state or locality in this regard. So the LGBT bar site has the very recent, most current list of which states have these defenses currently pending before legislatures. Regardless of which state you're in, it would be great if you had the time to make a phone call, write a letter supporting these amendments and these laws coming to pass in your state. But also, you know, a lot of this work also comes out of state and local bar associations, especially with respect to jury instructions and making sure there are relevant jury instructions available and that the courts know and understand this defense, so education. And so, you know, you may, there may be people working in your local bars that you can partner with or at least get information from regarding what is going on in your particular state. And then one follow-up question, if they were to want to get involved with a bar association, do you know who they could contact to get involved with this specifically? The National LGBT Bar Association on its website will have a contact reference there that people can ask and talk to someone who can find out how they might be able to get involved in their particular state. So that's a good place to go. Anybody can email me. I'm out there on the web and I'm always happy to direct or answer questions on what the most pressing and immediate needs are with respect to getting legislatures passing these amendments. So I'm happy always to answer questions too. Excellent. Okay. Well, this is a great starting point. And if nothing else, I'm motivated. I live in Maryland. I'm motivated to follow up with my state leadership, let them know I support getting rid of this. So it's effective and motivating at least one person to do something. So thank you, Lucene, for taking action on this and also for informing us and our listeners about this defense strategy and also giving us some tools to take action if we choose to do that. Yeah, thanks, Emily. And thanks so much for doing this podcast and for your interest and anyone else's who's listening. And we continue to look forward to seeing more of those news articles come out showing that different states have banned the gay panic defense. I know that on our social media channels, I've been able to share updates from different states. And from my perspective, it seems like it's happening with great frequency right now. So here's hoping that momentum continues, right? Indeed. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you again, Lucene. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.